After receiving a tip from Adult Protective Services, Montana State Securities Division began an investigation into a man allegedly using his fellow church members' bank accounts as a personal piggy bank. The tip they received was right. When all was said and done, over $2 million was unaccounted for. Thankfully, the Montana State Securities Division was there to help. Welcome to Real Life Regulators, NASA's first podcast aimed at educating investors using real cases. My name is Liz Mullen, and I'm an attorney with the State of Connecticut Securities Division. Today's episode is hosted by Nick Vondrew from Alabama and Tina Kotzlis from Pennsylvania. Joining them to discuss the case is County Attorney with Custer County, Montana, Wyatt Glade, and Brett Olin, an attorney who was with the Montana Securities Division at the time the case occurred. They are here to talk about what happened, what went wrong, and what you can do in the future to best protect yourself. I'm Nick Vondrew, the Marketing Specialist for the Alabama Securities Commission, and I'll be serving as one of your hosts. And today, my co-host is Tina Kotzelis, Director of Investor Education for the Pennsylvania Department of Banking and Securities. The subject of this case is Mr. Richard Brandt. Can either one of you tell us a little bit about what kind of person Mr. Brandt was? You know, Mr. Brandt was... um... At the time of the events unfolding in this thing, uh, I would say in his 50s, I'm just guessing, uh, he was a well thought of member of our community, very well known in his church, did a lot of favors for people, I guess I'd say. He's kind of one of those guys that if you you knew him and you went to his church, you'd think he's a pretty solid guy. Uh, He was well dressed, uh, well educated, well spoken, at least on the outside. Uh, seemed like a good guy. So was he pretty much, was he a hometown guy? I think he'd been in Mile City for a significant period of time. I'm not sure whether he grew up here. He's older than I am. So, um, well, I don't know how, how long he had been here, but he certainly wasn't what I would consider a transplant. You know, I, I'll tell you that in my job, I see a lot of repeat customers, so to speak, and I had never even heard of Mr. Brandt uh, until this happened. So, you know, I think, I don't know if that answers your question or not. He, he was pretty well thought of, and he's the last guy that you would have thought would have ended up being the target of something like this. What was, what was his day job? Yeah, he had his own uh, insurance agency that he was selling, um, fixed annuities out of. He was also helping people with Medicare and Medicaid uh, filings. I don't think he was getting paid for that. He certainly wasn't. He was licensed for a short period of time with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Montana. Okay. Uh, but he was not um, doing much more than that at the time. This was when he was like, as Wyatt said, when he was in his mid-50s. What he did before that, uh, I, I do not know. Was he a successful insurance agent? And what what all types of insurance was he selling? Annuities are considered a type of life insurance because they're giving you that consistent return that you might find in a, in a term life policy or something along those lines. So that's what he was doing. Whether or not he was successful, um, well, he had been living for a long time as an insurance agent. He'd been licensed for a good 10 or 15 years. So I assume that he was doing uh, enough business to pay to pay the bills. I don't know what other schemes he had been involved with prior to the one that Wyatt and I looked at. So how did your office come to learn 
of Mr. Richard Grant? What happened? And so we received a complaint from APS because APS had sent this up through the channels and they weren't sure if there was anything to do with it and they were debating closing it. But the woman who was on the ground who had dealt with the first victim that we found said, boy, this just seems really bad. I would really like to, uh, I cheated into one of our um, public forums that we put on for the APS workers and she thought there might be something more there than what the APS was looking at. So she actually came directly to us and then we started an investigation. And APS, just to clarify, is the Adult Protective Services, correct? Correct. And exactly what was she seeing that brought concerns up to her? So in this particular instance, there was a 101-year-old lady. Mr. Brandt was acting as the caretaker for her financial situation. We know that she was receiving $4,000 a month. Her payment to her retirement home was approximately $3,000 a month, and she had um, about $100,000 in the bank when all this started. Um, her daughter, who attended the church with her, who would take her to the church on a regular basis, was a very busy woman and couldn't handle the finances as much as she would like to have. She trusted Mr. Brandt to handle those finances because he'd been helping out some other people in the community with their finances, and he was a respected insurance agent in town. The assisted living home said, your mother has not made a payment in six months. And she said, how is that possible? She has enough money in her account and her monthly payments to cover that. Well, they started looking at it and found out that all the money that she had was gone. Her mother went through the records and found a note, uh, which is a promissory note to loan Mr. Brandt money for the promise of the return of investment. We'll talk later about what that investment was, but in regards specifically to your question of how we became aware of it, essentially she was about to be kicked out of her home and her daughter didn't understand why. And she went directly to APS and says, I think my mother has been fleeced by this man. And exactly um, what was he offering to her? Yeah, that's a good question because he had a company that he had set up called Home Investors LLC. And so he, when he needed money, because he had access to all of her bank accounts, and whenever that company would need money, he would use it like a piggy bank until the point of, and maybe Wyatt can remember, I'm trying to remember, I mean, there must have been 10 payments that went directly to Home Investors LLC some with promissory notes, most without, where he was just utilizing her bank account to finance that company. Which yeah, that, that's exactly what happened. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how Mr. Brandt targeted people. He would pick her up and take her to church on a regular basis, and she just thought he was the greatest thing around. Um, and he, somehow he essentially volunteered or was asked to manage her finances for her. I'm not certain he even had a valid power of attorney to do so, but, but he was doing it. And it was one of the, the kind of shocking things about her daughter was a psychologist. And she's a very well-educated, sharp lady, and she even trusted Mr. Grant. So he moves himself into this position of trust by, by providing these services, taking her to church, 
paying her bills for her. And the daughter, the Alita guy, starts getting notifications from the, the, the living facility that, that her payments weren't being made and she was delinquent and because her mother was, was set up. She had uh, the income that I mentioned, and I believe she had a husband who had died in the military, so she was getting uh, a pretty decent income from that. There's no reason that she should not have had any money. Well, come to find out, Mr. Brand had been writing himself checks and had not only stolen some money, he had bled her dry. I and mean, there was no money left. And she was in arrears pretty deeply at that living facility where she was at. And she had over $100,000 in a nest egg. Correct. I did dig up his pre-sentence investigation report. He, he had misappropriated $73,800 to Home Investors, LLC. The real issue was that Mr. Brandt was surrounded by people who had not very limited financial literacy. These were highly intelligent people who were farmers, and they had never been liquid in their entire life. So when Mr. Brandt, when these people wanted to retire, or had a large chunk of money, they would go to Mr. Grant for advice and inevitably he would put them into a fixed annuity product. Um, and they'd get 2% on their fixed annuity product and for their needs, that was perfectly fine. There was nothing unsuitable about that. The problem occurred about a year and a half after he got all these people into fixed annuity products that he started encouraging them to get a higher return on their investment. When you lose when you surrender your fixed annuity early you pay what's called a penalty a surrender penalty so all of these people ended up paying cumulatively about 150 to 170 thousand dollars on surrender penalties on annuities that they bought for mr brandt and were encouraged to liquidate less than two years later to put into his business home investors llc so they were burnt, and he, by the way, received a commission up front whenever he sold those. Typically on a fixed annuity product, you're receiving 5 to 7%, sometimes a little more. I don't think ever less. Um, sometimes a little more than that. So he had originally received a commission for putting these people into a fixed annuity, and then a year, year and a half later said, you know what? You guys don't want to be in that product. You need to go, you need to get something that has a higher rate of return. And you mentioned the term, um, they had never been liquid before. For our listeners out there, um, can you just explain a little bit of what being liquid actually means? You bet. And so when, you're, when we talk about liquidity, we talk about your, it's not really a cost to equity ratio, it's more of what's your cash flow like. And so most of these farmers had spent their entire life pouring every dime they ever made right back into the farm. You know, you need a new combine, you need a new fence, you need you know, to buy seed, you have to do all these certain things to um, keep the farm going. They were not savvy with cash because everything that they had went directly back into the farm. They never had cash before. They got all of a sudden, though, when they wanted to retire, and some of these people were retiring at age 80, um, 75, 80, 85, as, as we all know, farmers like to work until they can't anymore, quite candidly. Um, so they would sell the family farm either to their neighbor, to an out-of-state corporation, to whomever they sold it to, and all of a sudden they had, um, I think in the case 
in one case in particular I'm thinking of, they received $800,000. Well, they didn't know what to do with $800,000 because they simply never had cash before. How did Mr. Grant work to gain their trust? What exactly did he do to earn the trust of these hardworking people? Uh, the men's group at church was a large source. Um, they would go every, Mr. Brandt and his wife would go every Sunday to church and they'd bring food for the potluck that they had after the service every Sunday. They would um, sometimes bring, uh, he would sometimes bring the Bible whenever they started talking about money. Uh, he would definitely go to people's homes. Um, he wasn't cold calling people by any stretch of the imagination. Because you can imagine if you have a group of 50 people, as Wyatt said earlier about the size of the church, if, if you have a group of 50 people, you're not going to have a lot of financial specialists in that. It doesn't matter where your group of 50 people is coming from unless you're right down on Wall Street, I guess. So he was considered a voice of financial reason throughout the church and the community. It's important to note not all of his members came from that community, um, but certainly a large percentage of them did. When he discovered that his clients were having annuities that were offering a return of 2%, it's from our understanding that he was uh, talking to those clients and having them take the money that was invested in those annuities and investing it with him. And what was he offering in return for doing so? You know, he kind of promised them the moon. Um, and, and I don't think he targeted just people who had annuities. I mean, there were some who definitely did have annuities but he kind of targeted about anybody that he could target so to speak and he also used his contacts with people through his medicare medicaid insurance service they basically knew when they had a lump sum of money sitting somewhere and then he would approach them and offer them a deal where they would invest in this home investors llc this house flipping business promised them 15% on their money um, for the term of the contract. So, you know, that sounds pretty good compared to what you were getting out of an annuity at that time. And he was offering a 15% return? Correct. And that's what the notes were consistently uh, saying. So remember the earlier talk we had about liquidity and people who didn't understand, who were not financially savvy. If I have $800,000 and you're telling me I can get 15% versus 2%, that's a significant difference in the amount of return that I'm gonna get on my investment. And so when you start talking about that in straight cash dollars on, a per, on an annualized basis, that's a lot of money. And for the first six months to a year of the investment, Mr. Brandt would make those payments to people that they were expecting. So you can imagine that when people are starting to see that return come to fruition, then they're going to keep investing. What we found out through our, and so you'll see, excuse me, you'll see a lot of subsequent investments from the same people because they were getting this nice rate of return. Originally, when payments couldn't be made, he would start getting money from other investors. And quite often those other investors money would be put in and within the same day that money would go directly back out to previous investors. That's the very definition of a Ponzi scheme. And so on the promissory notes that he was writing, um, many people do not realize that promissory notes have to be registered. And I'm just guessing that his promissory notes that he was issuing was not registered. 
No, and in fact, we charged him with a felony for that. Um, and that was an important component of our case, we felt, was that not only was he unlicensed, the notes that he was selling were also unlicensed, and so we charged him separately for both of those offenses. Did he know that what he was doing was wrong? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I think Judge Hayworth, uh, in the sentencing part of the case, was very clear that he didn't know what he was doing was wrong. He may not have known at the time that uh, issuing a security without registering it is illegal. I, I'm not going to pretend that he did. But what he did know he was doing wrong was taking money. And he was very candid both in cross-examination and Judge Hayworth was very candid that no matter how sorry or guilty he felt, he was taking that money on the same day and giving it to previous investors. Once we talked earlier about him using Olivia Geis as a piggy bank, he eventually used, started using Home Investors LLC as a piggy bank, purchased um, a couple of Arabian horses for his wife. He went to Disney and SeaWorld both with the family, flew seven people down to California to spend a week at Disney, paid for all the hotels, all the tickets, all of that stuff out of investor funds. Wow. Hey, on that point about whether he knew this was wrong or not, uh, you know, I can only, I guess, deduct his intentions, uh, but it looked to me like he maybe started out with the idea that this was a legitimate business plan. But I think even in, in that idea inherent in there, she's going to be placing money from unsuspecting folks with the idea that you're gonna funnel a lot of it to your family members. Like Brad said, they, he sent his wife to Hawaii, kids to Disneyland or Disney World. Pay child support for his sons. He absolutely knew that that was wrong from the get-go, and that didn't happen just overnight. That was something that happened over a, a period of months or years. And, and I think by the end, he absolutely knew it was wrong. He was just trying to dig himself out of a hole, but but he, he absolutely knew that what he was doing was wrong. But if he had told everybody what he was doing and said, hey, I don't know the first thing about home flipping. This is an interesting business that I'm going to get into. I think there's a chance to make money. I can't take your $800,000, but if you want to give me 10000 I can try and give you a 10% return. It, it might have been okay because then he would at least be disclosing to people what the risks are with their investments. But this particular instance, they had full trust in him, and there was no risk disclosure of, I don't know what the heck I'm doing, and all your money is going to be tied up in one investment that I'm going to control that I don't know anything about. And so let's talk a little bit about these victims. Uh, it appears that he had 17 investors, 15 of whom were over the age of 65, and he took over $2 million from these people. And I think it's fair to say that all of these people were hardworking people that had worked their whole lives to get this money. And just in one basic scheme, he was able to take it. So what kind of people did he target? Or was there a certain demographic? Or was it just anybody? If he knew you were coming into money, he was targeting you if you had any type of relationship of trust with him. 
you're making 2% there, or you're not making any, enough of investment, I'll give you 15%. I've got this great plan to go do uh, home flipping. It wasn't a long pitch, quite candidly. It wasn't a, I'm going to sell you this and work your way into this over a period of a month or two, because these people trusted him so much and didn't understand. They were just, they were quite literally just writing checks to him. Even his own pastor at the church wrote him a $60,000 check out of his own retirement fund. So that was one of the questions. The church leadership, were they, they had to have been aware of what he was doing then if the, if the pastor knew. Yeah, at first the church leadership uh, was fairly supportive of him, I think. And even tried to, once the church leadership realized what had happened, the church leadership still couldn't believe what had happened. So there was a real disconnect there between the church leadership um, and their own experiences and the trust which they continued to put into Mr. Brandt. And I can remember the church leadership thing at one point in time, I told people to, to trust Richard. I told them that, you know, that everything would be fine, that Richard was a good man of God. And if he told them they'd get their money back, he'd get their money back. And I've got my own money with him. So there was a real disconnect between what we were seeing on the ground, which was money coming back in fits and starts based on when new investors would come in because then you have money to actually pay the old investors. And so that dichotomy really played out in, in, in a, in a heart-wringing fashion with the church to the point where the church eventually, uh, I think, split split up a little bit and there became the, the pro-brand and anti-brand components of the church because some people eventually got so frustrated and when all the case came to light, uh, you can imagine that a lot of people especially when the church leadership had taken such an active role in supporting Mr. Brand, I don't want to say sponsoring him, but certainly supporting him, that people had lost faith in the leadership of the church. But this, this is a classic case of two of the biggest threats that investors face in when you have affinity fraud and a Ponzi scheme coming together. And for our listeners out there, affinity fraud is when somebody can infiltrate a group whether it's a religious group, social group, any kind of group, and gain the trust of the leader. And if they can gain the trust of the leader, the followers will be like the sheep and they will go wherever the leader tells them to. And with the Ponzi scheme, just taking the older investors' money and paying the newer investors. So he was able to execute these two schemes flawlessly, it almost sounds like. Nick, you're exactly right. And... Affinity fraud is a fraud that often makes NASA's top 10 list of frauds each year because it is the fraud that says, I am like you, so you can trust me. Right. We have something in common. And they use that as a way to infiltrate and influence people. And just to be clear, affinity fraud strikes more than just churches. And I know it's easy to think about it. And you made it really clear, any type of social group. In my time in Montana, I prosecuted affinity fraud in regarding a lesbian associate, a group of people in a very conservative area, a business community, a very well-to-do business uh, persons, both men and women that were very high up and highly respected throughout a community. Um, affinity fraud certainly within churches, um, within sporting teams, so it definitely can stretch much further than what we would typically think of as a social group that gets together on Sundays.
Well, when did the victims start asking questions? We got the bank records and we saw all the money that came in. We actually reached out to the victims. None of the victims had come to us until we reached out to them. Um, and once we started reaching out to the victims, the reality of what was going on uh, became apparent to them because they realized they were the only ones. And when we talk about fraud, we always talk about embarrassment as well, especially in the older community of people who built our nation. And right. all of a sudden they can't manage $500,000 and they're too embarrassed to tell their kids or they're too embarrassed to go to the authorities like Mr. Glade, or they're too embarrassed to um, call the police. And that's what was going on. Was nobody was complaining to anybody because they were quite candidly embarrassed about what had occurred. They weren't even talking to each other. Like, have you gotten your payment or have you gotten your payment? Um, and money would come in sporadically enough to keep people quiet. Was Mr. Brandt cooperative during the investigation? Was he shocked that he was being investigated? Mr. Brandt didn't know that he was under investigation until we um, filed charges. Wow. Because we had enough from all of our victims. and. This is always a difficult thing for a prosecutor, as you can imagine, when you have somebody that's under investigation, was, is do you go to him and let him try to come clean? Do you prosecute it uh, without his knowledge in these white-collar type cases? And so we made an investigative decision. He became aware that we were investigating him three months prior to us filing charges, and he was cooperative in that regard. Was he shocked? He was shocked and he did express at one point in time some remorse. He reiterated that remorse um, at a sentencing hearing, but the judge didn't want to have any part of it. To clarify, you know, the investigation happened some months before the trial. And at trial, um, I know we took a break and his attorney had a conversation with him about whether he ought to take the stand or not, like they always do, and advised him of the risks of doing so. And Mr. Brandt made the choice to take the stand. I think that he thought that he was going to be able to explain to everybody that this was just a bad business investment that went wrong and he didn't do anything intentionally wrong to anyone. And we were ready for him. And there was just an excellent investigation that had been done by Lenny again and the Red's department. It, it's the only time in my entire career thus far where a person has made a confession to a felony while on the stand under cross-examination. Wow. He just gave it up. I, I used it to pay those other investors. And I, I couldn't believe that he did that. Wow. So we did full-on confession uh, to the Ponzi scheme angle. And uh, so, yeah, I don't think taking the stand worked out very well for him. So ultimately, he was found guilty. What was he uh, found guilty of and what was his sentencing? Mr. Brown, please stand for the verdict. So he was convicted of six counts. To the crime of exploitation of an old person, guilty. To the crime of theft by embezzlement, guilty. To the crime of failure to register as a security salesperson, guilty. To the crime of failure to register as security, guilty. To the crime of fraudulent practices, guilty. To the crime of operating a pyramid promotional scheme, guilty. The net is 60 years, Montana State Prison. 
20 of which is suspended, 40 of which is imposed. Did he say anything to his victims during sentencing? Uh, I think he apologized, and that's what the judge didn't want to hear it. Um, he said he was sorry that he didn't mean for any of this to happen. Where Judge Hayworth essentially said, you knew what you were doing. The crimes here, they did take planning and manipulation and juggling different people. It was range her account to zero, an account that never should have been depleted. And it's, that's how this case came to light. Not because you recognized that it needed to end, but because it was ended for you. judge was very stern with him and not accepting his apology, essentially. Did anybody get their money back? I, I, I thought that there is no way that they're ever going to see a dime of that. And uh, Brett was able to do some, some fantastic things uh, and, and get these people uh, a significant amount of money uh, through his role in his agency. Uh, so I, I think with that intro, I'd like Brett to explain that to you. You bet. And so there were, I guess there were essentially four components of getting the money back. And one of the things we haven't talked about is the Ponzi scheme element on the people that are getting their money back during the life of the scheme. So some people had been getting some of their principal back um, as new investors came in. That's how the Ponzi scheme works. It's heartbreaking, though, when they find out that their money came from other innocent victims. And to see the look on their faces when they realized that the person sitting next to them at the courtroom, they had essentially taken $2,000 from them because Mr. Brandt had given them money uh, from those people as they invested later on. So the earlier investors were getting money back from later investors. We were able to work with the insurance companies to get the surrender penalties um, restored to those people, um, and that was done through um, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. So when Mr. Brandt had eight people liquidate their annuities within a, a year of purchasing them, and the insurance companies didn't look and say, why are all these people suddenly liquidating their annuities after one year, we were able to get them to waive those surrender penalties and actually credit their accounts. So that was nice. And then the, the other component that Wyatt's talking about is this Montana Securities Restitution Fund. We set this up in 2011. It was unfunded at the time, although we were able to fund it through various consent orders with registered entities uh, that would contribute money to it. And Montana's, is, um, it was not the first in the nation. The first in the nation's was Indiana. Montana mirrored it similar to Indiana, except for we raised what people could get back, the amount of money they could get back. And then we also included a component that if you're an elder person, you could get twice as much back. We also ran a source of funding from registration fees to that restitution fund so that people were able to get back as much as $50,000 individually. Um, those components together, along with a couple of other components, were able, we were able to get people back 56 cents on the dollar, which is, as you can imagine, um, unheard of, quite honestly. You right. see that in federal cases, certainly. I mean, the Bernie Madoff 
restitution is still dragging on and people are still trying to figure out how to get that money back. Now, obviously, we're talking about billions there, not the millions that we were talking about. But whenever there's no money and no funds out there, to be able to get any money back is, is quite a gift. And it really helped people's lives because most of these people have lost, not most, um, but a lot of these people had lost everything. Um, they had to downsize their assisted living facilities from a two-bedroom to a one-bedroom. Um, they had to start working again. They lost the ability. I'll never forget one of the victims on the stand who had lost $180,000. Um, we asked him how this affected him, and he says, well, I used to go out for a steak dinner every Sunday, and now I can't afford to do that. Mm. You know, just things like that. So the amount of victims... What really affected this case as much as anything, I think, for the judge's perspective in regards to sentencing was the particular victims were just incredible human beings uh, by any stretch of the imagination. These were the salt of the earth. These were the hard workers. These were the people that we want to exalt as a nation and say, this is what makes America great. These were people who worked their entire lives. All of them put their trust in one man and... Uh, they all got burned to the point where their retirement was essentially shot. Mr. Olin, were there any particular moments or maybe things that the victims told you that you carried with you and motivated you even more? When you look back on the case, are there yeah. lines that people have said that just keep echoing in your mind when you think about it? A woman who had only invested thirty thousand dollars, so not all of these were large-scale investments, and she had lost um, her homes in California because she had been renting out to meth dealers. She moved to Montana to get away from California to be safe, um, and the first person she meets is Richard Brandt, and uh, you know we asked her in in our interview with her before the trial. I, I'll just remember sitting there and we asked her, "Well, what did you get for your thirty thousand dollars?" And she's like, "Well." He took me to church a couple of times. Oh, and, and he washed my car once. Gosh. And that's what you got for $30,000. You know, there's a lot of things that are burned in my brain from, from this trial and from this sentencing. I remember one of those guys that when you look at him like, that guy's smart. He worked hard all his life. He's loaded. He is set up. And it's just gone. And I don't, Brett, you may have to weigh in on this. But I don't think he ever had the, the courage to tell his kids about what no. happened. That's exactly right. He, he never did tell his kids. But they didn't get the inheritance that they were anticipating, that's for sure. I think the worst one, he broke down in tears because now his mom had to support him because Brandt had stolen his money. And, you know, continuing to work with him through the sentencing and, and trying to explain to him his disability, why things are happening in the court system. I mean, it's heart-wrenching. Mr. Glade, you're the county attorney, so you deal with cases that are very varied and different. What did you learn from this one and working with Montana? I think the, the big takeaway from this is that this crime involved victimization of a type that we don't see often in the run-of-the-mill prosecution business. These people were devastated. They lost their life savings. They lost what they were going to pass on to their kids. 
and many of them wouldn't even come forward or approach law enforcement about it because I think they thought they felt guilty. Um, they didn't think there was any help to be given. And it's it just the amount of victimization and criminal activity that happened in our community in a place you wouldn't expect it. In a small church in Mile City, Montana, to have a, a $2 million property crime just blows me away. Uh, I, I just still, <laughs> that's shocking. And I think there's probably more of it happening than a person knows. And that's the challenge is how do we do better at, at detecting these crimes, prosecuting these crimes, and availing people who are victims of the resources? Well, this is a perfect place to talk about how this could have been prevented. If someone offers me a 15% guaranteed return on my investment, while this sounds good, it is a huge red flag because it's too good to be true. Were there any other red flags that these investors should have recognized? For those of us that are in the securities business um, or the regulatory business, it's easy for us to spot them because we see them all the time and we go to conferences and we attend meetings where they point them out. For the everyday investor, they not, that may not be as clear. One of the things you talked about was 15%. Um, that's anything, you know, that's not blue chip over 5%. You're talking, you need to really start looking at this. Um, you know, some blue chips certainly offer, you know, higher rates of return on them, um, through dividends and things like that. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a private company issuing a note that's promising you 15%. That's unheard of and likely almost guaranteed to be a fraud. One of the other things that I mentioned earlier was risk disclosures that should have been the red flag. There were no financials produced about this company. Um, people could have asked about the financials and people later on did start asking about financials, but they were never produced. One of those things that you want to look at before is you want to look at the business plan. You want to look at what the risks are. You want to look at what the models are. None of that was ever produced for the people prior to investment or um, even after they invested, but certainly prior to investment. And that's one thing I would encourage all the listeners today to start looking at is um, when somebody's offering you something, whatever it is, make sure you're asking those questions um, about risk disclosure and everything else. One of the things that if you're an annuity, no annuity salesperson in his or her right mind would ever tell you to liquidate after a year to buy into his own company because you don't liquidate a, an annuity after a year. It's a long-term seven-year investment, eight-year investment typically. Um, fixed annuity sometimes 10 years or, or longer. So you don't, um, to have somebody say you need to buy this and then one year later say you don't need to buy, you need to get out of this after he had just sold it to you or she had just sold it to you is, is highly problematic and certainly should start the alarm bells uh, buzzing. This case started because of one man's greed and uncertainty about his future. He made a determination that he knew better than all of the markets and what all of the returns were. So he started going to people that trusted him, trust that he had built through his church and through the relationships and getting people to invest money in his home flipping company. When that home flipping company 
failed to materialize in as much as he didn't know anything about home flipping because all he had was a three-day seminar in California. He started taking money from other people and giving it to previous investors. He utilized the trust that they had, the trust that they continued to have in them whenever he would make payments to previous investors to help get new investors. The scheme perpetuated itself by that constant flow of trust, that constant flow of money back into the program for new investors. And if the new, if he had never found a new investor, the case would have been stopped immediately. He kept finding new investors. There was always new investors. And it's really interesting to note that over time, the new investors amount that they were contributing became smaller and smaller. So he started out with an 800 or $500,000 investor. Then he had a $200,000 investor and a couple more. And then eventually the investments were 25,000 and 30,000, which was just enough to get a couple of payments out the door so that people wouldn't go to the police. They wouldn't go to the county attorney or they wouldn't uh, go to the state. Um, one of the, the touching victim moments, and Brett may have explained this already, is that, you know, you mentioned earlier, did these investors talk to one another? Well, I think the answer is largely no, because some of these investors learned for the first time during trial that the money that they had received as payments came from other people who had been victimized. Mm -hmm. And that re-victimized those people to learn that, you know, I, I suppose they were sitting there thinking, well, at least I got a little bit back out of this guy. And then to find out that it came from someone who had been fleeced of his nest egg, I think that made them feel terrible. Uh, just one of those things that happens in trial sometimes. Um, you know, the, the other really cool thing about this trial was the cooperative approach between the state auditor's office and my office. I think I mentioned that I wasn't a part of this case until probably a month before trial. And we kind of got to know each other as we tried this case. And it worked out to be really cool. We're friends to this day, but, um, you know, I think the approach worked very well, at least for Montana. Maybe it'll work for other states where we were able to use local, local resources for local issues like jury selection and factual issues like, um, dealing with the witnesses that, that we knew locally here and, and the more technical financial questions were easily resolved by the people with the knowledge and I thought that approach worked great. We're actually trying to emulate that approach on a statewide basis here in Montana. But you know, one, one thing I learned about Brett as we're sitting there through trial is that uh, he and I are both fans of what you call off the beaten path country music. Mm. So. So we're sitting there and uh, I wrote a little note and I said, hey, do you know who James McMurtry is? And uh, he's like, oh yeah, he's one of my favorites. And I was like, holy cow, I didn't know anybody else even knew he existed. But uh, I mean, not to say anything bad about James McMurtry, but he sings this song, um, simple things, I think, or childish things. I put away childish things, it's called, and there's this great line in that song about uh, the wolves howl all night long and we kind of built a theme out of that with Mr. Brad because he's kind of like the wolf. He's like the old wolf in the cartoon, you know, dressed up in a sheep suit and went out there and just took advantage of these poor innocent folks. And that's what he was. I mean, he, he, he's not a very sinister guy physically, but 
very much a wolf in sheep's clothing. He disguised himself as a harmless, friendly guy who was there to help these people, and he just fleeced them dry. How can someone check the background of a person making the investment offer to ensure that they are legit? Go to nasa.org. That is N-A-S-A-A dot O-R-G. Click Contact Us and then click NASA Member to then choose your jurisdiction's regulator. Being an informed investor means having a plan and understanding each of your investments. Whether you're new to investing or already investing, NASA and its members provide a variety of online investor education resources for investors of all ages. Go to nasa.org for more information on how to be a wise and safe investor. Well, thank you both for joining us and for the work that you do to protect the investors. We would also like to give a big shout out to our producer, Chris Cartelli. He is from the Securities and Business Investment Division of the Connecticut Department of Banking. That is it for today. And from Montgomery, Alabama, I'm Nick Bondaroo. And from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, I'm Tina Cutler. If you would like to hear future episodes, please hit the subscribe button.